All right. For those who... Uh, Privilege. Come on. Respect. For those who may or may not know me, I am Jeremiah Spurlock, son of the great Rick Spurlock. And tonight, I'm going to be having a uh, lesson on reincarnation in Judaism. Now, oh, great. I all right, as an introduction, um, not a small number of our Jewish brethren uh, believe in reincarnation. Why? Where does this co- uh, concept come from? More importantly, where does this concept appear in the scriptures? Most people don't have a clue that uh, people, anyone in Judaism uh, believes in reincarnation. A lot of people think that's strictly like an Asian thing or something like that. But there's a very large quantity of Jews who do. So, what is this? Well, in Hebrew, reincarnation is called Gilgol Nashamot, and literally means soul cycle. In some more mystical sects of Judaism, primarily in um, Hasidic groups, Gilgol is a means of returning to life in order to better fulfill your life through obedience to the Torah. Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Ari, supposedly said this, Every Jew must fulfill all 613 mitzvot. And if he does not succeed in one lifetime, he comes back again and again until he finishes. Alright, some additional information about this, this concept. It's not a replacement for resurrection. I did a lot of research, and uh, Chabad.org had a bunch of information on this. And they said, very speci- specifically, that this concept is not a replacement for resurrection. They said that it's two separate things. With Reincarnation, they say that it's this, um, it's the soul returning in a new body. Whereas resurrection is the soul going to the original body. Now, the one question that I considered and that my brother and my dad also raised is, well, if you have resurrection after you have reincarnation, then which body do you come back to? If you had like 80, then... I mean, yeah, so... like the Sadducees' question of Yeshua, which husband is That's actually what I was thinking as well, but anyway. funny how, yeah, I think that reincarnation starts to fall apart on that one point. Yeah, that's a very strong possibility, but anyway, I just wanted to note that. They also say that... The, whereas resurrection is the start of the ultimate war, uh, reward and, and is a key part of Olam Haba, the world to come, um, they say that reincarnation is instead a um, temporary tool and a repairing of the soul in order to better reach a form of perfection. But this is, this is what Chabad.org is saying. So this is different from Hinduism. In that you're not going to come back as a cat. No, absolutely not. You're going to come back as a cat. Exactly. It has to be a human. There is no other form that you can possibly take. No, no exactly come not. Back as a woman? Uh, actually. Most of us will come back. <laughs> I didn't actually ever discover that. There was quite a few that said, for further issues, read this book. So I actually never found anything about that. But. Yes. Is it always, is Gimbal always a degradation? Standing, or, or does the person that's being going through Gilgul come back as something higher in society, always lower in society? Um, it depends. It's like some people they they say are going to come back in um, forms that kind of like they use it as an explanation for why you know some people have miserable lives or something like that. It's because they previously had a really good life, and so it's because there were aspects in their really good life. So they're really wealthy. Well, they weren't able to keep certain parts of the commandments, whatever like that, because of their opportunities. So now, 
you know, they're going to come back as a poor person. That way they would be able to do that. But the other way you can look at that, according to this this um, concept, is that, well, if you're a really poor person, it's kind of hard to teach the whole poor orphan widow commandment with the, the fields. So you would have to come back as a rich person in order to do that. So that's that's kind of a, a part of that. But you had a question, sir? Or some? Um, I had a thought, but I was so listening to this rap that I lost it. will come back to me now. I'll interrupt you. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Alright, another thing that Kabad.org um, made a really clear point about, hold on just a second, is um, this t- concept does not lead to fatalism. They really wanted to hit home with that and really differentiate from beliefs like Buddhism. Um, that this whole idea um, is a still a choice. When you come back, it doesn't mean that you're going to have like, okay, I'm just going to follow this path and everything's going to happen. But that you actually... Um, have to choose moment to moment what you're going to do if you're going to fix things. So that's essentially saying like it's not like okay I'm going to come back and I'm going to fix this. No, it's still your responsibility to do it. That's what Kabbalah Organ says. Um, you had a question. Then I'll go to you, Johnny. Yeah, I remember my thought. Um, do, do they teach or do they teach the Buddhist Oh, that's a good that uh, actually, I didn't find that either. Thank you, Lord, that it did not make me a Gentile. Well, this time, because <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't soul. Yeah, Joey soul. Don't say that. Joel. Joey said soul. Judaism's approach to this, and I say Judaism gently because obviously there's many strands. I don't think you. Judaism believes that you do. Those who believe in this. Part of the idea of going, being part of Olam Haba, to some, to some sects of Judaism, requires you to be a Jew. So that could endanger that in theory, according to some. So I, I don't. I, I would agree with Joshua. I would think that probably it doesn't allow to. But uh, hold on. And that gets starts getting into a whole other area. But Johnny, you had something you wanted to say. I guess. Some of my thoughts are already just kind of bubbling over. It, it, and I guess a simple question would, would help with calming my mind down. What is it at all known in, in this resurrection theology that what you return as, so to speak, is is it based on the number of those 613 votes you complete or complete in addition to the ones that you didn't complete last time or something like that? Is it related to the specific, specifically? Wow, to look at the chart. Show? 47 left. You come back as a banker. <laughs> 43. Oh, farmer. There's a banker someplace you go. Yeah, is, it, <laughs> is there any of that thought process? You mean as in like... Okay, so I didn't do this time, this this time because of my life. So I know I'm going to come back in the future and do that. Is that what you're asking? No, really no, no, there isn't. It's actually um, I had a thought on that and I just lost it. But with that, it's the way you come back. For one thing, and I'll, I'll get into this a little bit, a little bit later. Yeah, for one thing, they say that everyone comes back, every soul comes back. That's one part of this concept. But another thing they say is that um, you won't ever actually know what you're going to come back at, which actually leads me to the next point. No knowledge of past lives. And that's something that Chabad.org made very clear. So thank you for helping me lead to the next point there. They say that it's, they say that essentially it's not important for you to know, according to this concept, what you, who you were before, 
because, or even if you had come before, because in the end, what mattered was what you were choosing to do now, not what you did before. And so actually, that was one thing they said is, practically speaking then, some could argue that there's really no reason to know about this, because practically speaking, it doesn't make a difference. But I, I still think there is a reason to say yes or no to this. But yes, sir? Enoch, as in he walked with God and he was not? That's a good question. I think what their, their response to that would probably be he did reach that level of perfection. That he did keep all the commandments um, with foreknowledge of them and was able, because of that, to go and be with God because he achieved that. Did you say Gilgul was not something that I actually did more research on that after I talked to you about that and discovered that the Arya... Now, there's different views on this. Once again, there's... Not to be derogatory in any way, but there's an old saying, two Jews, three opinions. And it's present in a lot of groups, but that's just a saying. Um, there's a lot of different views on this. Um, but one of them is the Arya. And he said that every soul comes back. It's not just Jews, and it's actually a guaranteed thing. Everyone will come back at some point in time. He didn't go into what exactly the Gentiles are doing because they're not usually keeping the Torah. So I don't know what his whole issue is with that. It wasn't specifically mentioned. I don't know. I guess they're just coming back and just kind of living their life. And... Yeah, I know. But, so I, I guess you, you could argue that supposedly they're coming back with another opportunity every time. But... Insert a quarter. Insert a quarter. <laughs> <laughs> But that's why a lot of the, the things that I read referenced this concept entirely within Judaism. That essentially, they didn't even see a reason to talk about it outside of Judaism. But, so this is the additional information about this concept. Moving on now, where can we find this in the Tanakh, if anywhere? There is no overt mention of reincarnation anywhere in the Tanakh. There are only allusions that can be found. Below are some of the verses used as scriptural evidence by those who support Google. And I would like if um, someone could read one of this or each of them. But the first one is Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. Would someone be willing to read that? All right, you got it? 5 through 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's, of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. But if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, and pull his sandal off his foot, and spit in his face, and she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, and also of him who had his sandal pulled off. So those who would argue that um, Gilgal is within Scripture use this verse as evidence for it, because they say... When the brother, when the, the husband dies and the brother marries the widow and they have a son, well, they, they argue that that son then actually is the reincarnation of the father. That because the father passed away, it's an opportunity for that son 
for the, for the father kind of to be continued. They they take it past just this idea of um, the father's name being con- continued and the heritage and the family line, and go so far as to say it's actually the father coming back. Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's what they're they're arguing with that, and that's that's where that that verse is coming in as evidence. But I had to actually explain that. Y'all didn't see that before, so that's saying something right there. But. <laughs> well, I understood it right away. All right, so we're going to continue now on to the uh, the next verse. Is Deuteronomy thirty three six. So this verse, um, those who argue um, that this is evidence for um, this concept of Gilgal, say that it's because Reuben live and, and not die, that it's um, as if, like, not just his people, but as in the very spirit of the man himself, Reuben, be carried on throughout each generation. That way it's like the embodiment, not just of the people itself, but the very man himself is present in every generation. So they're using that as further support for this argument. All right, the next one is Job 33:29. It's actually a 29 and 30. I got it. All right. Behold, God does not all Behold, God does all these oftentimes with men to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, O Job. Oh, excuse me, that was it. Yep. Now, the interesting thing with this is um, the literal translation of um, what appears at least in my NASB Bible is um, it says all these often times with men and the literal translation is twice or three times. And so what those who argue that Gilgal is present in Scripture argue this verse points to it in that uh, God brings back men twice or even thrice uh, to be enlightened with the light of life, as in the idea of them being brought back in order to better fulfill the Torah and better reach some form of perfection in some way. So that's what they're using this verse for. One thing I will note is the man speaking here is one of the companions of Job, not Job himself. And considering the fact that those men at times have problems with some of what they're saying, it is it is important to take into consideration, Not I'm not saying necessarily that right at this very moment, anything about this concept, but I will like to say, please note that it isn't Job who's saying these things here, or God talking to Job about it at this point. Now, the next verse is uh, Isaiah twenty-two fourteen. This verse, um, it's kind of similar to the Reuben idea, but with, um, with those who are committing iniquity, um, essentially you're going to be brought back until you die as in like the final death. And so you're going to be keep coming back in order to fix this. So that's kind of an interesting way of looking at that. I don't know how to continue past that, but that's essentially what they're saying with that verse. And uh, the next one is Isaiah 65.6. Okay. 
Okay. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom. So for those who argue that Gilgal is present in Scripture, they argue that in this verse, he's saying, I will repay even into the bosom. So the idea being that those who are to come, the next generation, are those who did had the mistake in the first place. And so their punishment is being given to them in another life. So... That's um. That's all. Those are the four main ones that, uh, that I found. Uh, sorry, five main ones that I found um, in my research. But interestingly, there isn't a whole lot of even allusions that can be argued in Scripture. That really, there isn't a whole lot that's talked about this concept in Scripture. So, if Gilgal can barely even be argued to be alluded to in Scripture, where does this concept originate from? Where in Judaism is it coming from? What is the source? And it originates from the Zohar, which is the Jewish mystical writings of Kabbalah. But this was primarily introduced into Judaism as we know it today through the teachings of Rabbi Isaac Luria, known as the Ari. He's the one I mentioned at the beginning. And it's short for Ashkenazi Rabbi Isaac. There's several different thoughts on that. Some claim it's a lot of other things, including the divine uh, Rabbi Arya. But that's one of the ones I found. So who was the Ari? <coughs> The Ari was a man who lived in the middle of the 16th century and was known as having studied both the Talmud and the Zohar at a young age. Uh, he studied the Talmud before 20 and uh, possibly studied the Zohar as young as 22. Yes, sir. Um, at 22, so was he allowed to study the Zohar at 22? Um, I actually looked into that and I discovered that the tradition of not being allowed to study the Zohar until you were married and usually into your 50s was not started until the actual the 17th century. And there were some that argued actually it was a result of some of the Arya's teaching that that tradition originated. <laughs> so that is interesting. I wanted to note that. But he, um, he did study at a very young age. One thing, it is interesting though, is the Zohar itself actually talks about, I found this in some research from other people, that the Zohar itself actually talks about being careful when it's studied. The, the, the text actually says, you know, if you're going to study this, you, it lays out this list of things. I can't remember all of them, but it talks about being mature, um, having things like a family, being a man who's wise in your years, and also says that it's extremely powerful and can lead to very destructive things. And so the Zohar itself claims, you've got to be really careful with this. And he's reading this at a very young age. He's actually kind of going against the Zohar in his studies. Now, the Ari studied under Rabbi David Ben Zimri, um, who himself is a, um, has a little bit of history with um, some of his commentary on um, uh, how to like, carry things out. Um, halakha, thank you, I forgot the word. Um, and he, this man was the chief rabbi of Egypt in, during this time in the 16th century. And uh, the Ari, after he went and studied with him, um, after he studied um, the Torah, and the Talmud, he went to study the Kabbalah, the Kabbalah alone by the Nile for seven years after his initial training in Judaism under the chief rabbi. When he went to the Nile, he would return every Shavos, and he would go back and go to the synagogue in Egypt. But when he did that, according to legend, now this is according to legend, there's no historical detail of this, but in this kind of instance it's kind of hard to find something like that. According to legend, Ari refused to speak to anyone during this time, during that seven years. The only person he ever spoke any words to were his wife, and keep it in as few senses as possible, few words as possible, and would only speak in Hebrew. He refused to speak to anyone else, and most certainly did not share his 
what he was studying and learning until much later. Additionally, he himself, according to the writings that his students put down later, claimed that Elijah himself appeared to him and taught him most of what he learned. Now, after his... It is. It is. Uh, after his solitary studying, the Ari went to Safed, near the Galilee, to teach others what he had learned about the Kabbalah. Asceticism was a central tenet of his method of studying. For those who don't know what asceticism is, it was a very popular belief in both pagan and um, actually even sometimes Christian beliefs that essentially you would deny your body in order to propel your soul higher. And so you would eat almost nothing, you would fast constantly. Um, some groups took it so far as to do actual like physical beatings to yourself in order to bring the physical into complete submission so the spiritual could be free to go higher. Yeah, this is a very much a very um, monk-based idea. And it fits with his whole idea of wanting to separate himself entirely from others. And he actually did that with his disciples. He went to a secluded part near Safed and just lived with them. So they were kind of cut off from the area around them. Although he left almost no writings behind other than a few psalms, or not psalms, but poems, um, his students are said to have copied all of his oral teachings down. Uh, One of them, um, uh, Vimri, I believe, I can't remember exactly how to pronounce his name, um, actually copied down a uh, a great number of his things and wrote in a book about it. I can't remember the name of it it off the top of my head. If you want, I can look it up afterwards. Um, But in this, he talks about the Ari in almost mythical things himself. The Ari as being a very almost supernatural person. And he makes the argument that the Ari wasn't magical in any way. He says, heaven forbid. But he does claim that the Ari was able to do a lot of things that the Zohar talks about, including looking at a person's face and knowing all the person's past and future deeds. So, his foremost student, who copies all of his stuff down, talks about the man being a very supernatural person, which is a little bit concerning from our point of view. So this man, though, he died at the young age of 38. So for someone who is considered to be so incredible and understands so much, he actually didn't really live that long and get to teach that much. And he definitely, uh, according to his views, um, I, I found one source. I found one source that claimed that the Ari had said that um, he was the reincarnation of Aaron, but I never found that in any other sources. So I'm pretty sure he didn't. But I would like to note that some people claim that the Ari claimed he was a reincarnation of Aaron. So, there's some interesting things going on with that, and uh, this is the man who put this into what we know of Judaism today. He was the founder of a lot of mystical teachings that ended up in Chabad teachings. So, now that we've seen what he says, what do the Apostolic Scriptures say? Some might make the argument that Yohanan the Immerser is a reincarnation of Eliyahu Hanavi. But, John 121 disproves this. Could someone please pull up uh, John 121? You have it? I do have it. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So John himself says, No, I'm not. Now you could argue, Oh, he didn't know, but. Then Yeshua himself goes on to say he is like, uh, like Elijah. He doesn't ever say, yes, he's the reincarnation of Elijah. And if anyone would know, I would think Yeshua would know. 
So I, that, to me right there, that disproves this. Elijah himself actually shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration. True. Very true. Yeah. He's not Elijah. He's Elijah. <laughs> so, yeah, unless the guy is having like a split soul somehow and appearing in two places at once, which. <laughs> yeah, so that kind of says something about that concept. But really, the thing that really hits home the hardest is Hebrews 9.27. Can someone please pull that up? read the next verse after that as well. So, Messiah was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9.27, from what I, everything I saw, offers some of the strongest evidence, evidence against Gilgal. Paul says, or not Paul, whoever is the author of Hebrews says very explicitly, look, you die once and then comes judgment. There isn't a do-over. There is an opportunity to come back and reach a higher level of perfection or anything like that. You have it one time. And that's very important because while the Tanakh does not speak much of Olam Haba, the book of Revelation talks about it in great detail. This is true to the concept of progressive revelation. And what we learn from Revelation and especially the Apostolic Scriptures is that if you can come back, it reduces the power of both what we do now and the importance of it and also the power of Yeshua's redemption and his um, sacrifice. If you can come back and just do it over and just fix the problem, then why do you need Yeshua to save you? So there's some issues right there with the whole concept itself. So what's the point of all this? What's the deal with Gilgal Neshemot? Is there any truth to it? Can anything be proven for or against it with Scripture? No. Gilgal Neshamot is a man-made tradition that has little to no basis in Scripture. Hebrews makes it clear that we only die once before judgment. Additionally, the idea that after death you will be able to come back and fix what you did wrong reduces the importance of what we do now and the importance of Yeshua's sacrifice. Finally, every verse in the Tanakh, and I mean every verse, used to prove the existence of Gilgal can instead be attributed to the resurrection, a concept that does appear in the Tanakh and is mentioned throughout the Apostolic Scriptures. So while, yes, you had something you want to say? And associated with that, I mean, just two quick points. Talking about the resurrection, Yeshua himself and challenging the Sadducees, um, they say, he says, have you not read, you know, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Exactly. Now, I don't think he implied that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were out roaming the fields at that very moment. It was more the idea that they, they will resurrect, they do resurrect, and it's not... Resurrection becomes undermined, as we mentioned earlier, by the concept of reincarnation. Plus, even though it's only a parable, Yeshua's parable of Lazarus and the rich man in the afterlife, you know, the rich man, he doesn't ask for a second chance. He doesn't say, that's not fair, Lazarus got to come back as a poor guy this last time, that's why he's on the right side, you know. So, I, I think that we're definitely, that, if there had been one time where it would have been a great opportunity to lay things out in the open, it's not there. And in fact, the argument is the exact opposite. You had your shot, your one shot, you blew it. You're here. You have something you want to say, sir? Yeah, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Um, and it goes with uh, the scripture in Hebrews here. And I'm going to bring out a little eschatology. Okay. Uh, in the case of Enoch and Elijah, and possibly seeing them as the two witnesses who stand before the God of this world in Revelation, and that they, in fact, lose their lives, do you see that as them 
doing that in order so that they the scripture will be fulfilled that they will have died, have died once and then comes judgment. And then the judgment. That's a way of looking at it, I suppose. I haven't done enough research on it to consider it that way. But that is an interesting way of looking at it. Joshua, you had well, something to say about this. To that point, I would say that um, Squid Tree family is very famous for saying, 10 out of 10 die. To which I always respond, that's not true. There may be some that don't die. To which they respond, statistical anomalies don't count. In other words, when it's appointed to man, it's a general sense. In general, everyone only dies once. Obviously, Lazarus... He died probably twice, mm -hmm. but he only died once and then got judgment. In other words, it wasn't like round two, got a better shot now. It was more like a little hiccup in the life cycle, now we're back. But same person, same soul, same body, all that deal. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15 describes people that won't die. It says uh, that uh, at, the, at, the last res at, at, the, at the resurrection, there will be some who don't die. Right, we shall not also. That's right. So, so obviously... You know, the, the, like Joshua says, it's not attributing a rule that re, that's required to be followed in order to be uh, to have a correct judgment. We can go through judgment without dying. But again, going back to and the resurrection, well. and, yeah, <laughs> the resurrection uh, point, though, is Paul, Paul makes it very clear in his discussion that resurrection proves the significance and essence of the body. The body is, in effect, crying out to be made whole. Mm -hmm. Gilgal ultimately undermines that entire concept because then you got a whole slew of bodies that don't have souls with them. So what happens to those? What's the point? So in effect, it destroys the connection between the soul and the body, which I think Scripture is actually trying to reinforce. Definitely. So, and you, I don't, you didn't mention your comments here. In your study, though, you pointed out that Gilgal has a lot of very ancient um, expression in Egyptian. It does. <coughs> I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't find a direct link, and so I didn't bring it up, and that's why I left it out. But and uh, I did see that um, it's a thing. It comes from a lot of Egyptian ideas and teachings, uh, even up to that point. So the fact that the Ari is in Egypt studying alone, and this is when he starts making all these discoveries, is a little concerning. Um, I think you had it first, sir. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is. There's. And, and even if you just look at it historically, and if you count the number of Jews, you know that have died or that are even alive today, compared to because I believe God, the Kabbalah says there was the total number of Jews uh, or Jewish souls was capped at Mount Sinai. Yeah. Uh, and if, but there's been a heck of a lot more Jewish people since Mount Sinai. Well, there was actually something I found about that. Um, one source that I was using his research. Now, granted, I'm not... I didn't have the best pick of sources. I would have liked to actually look at some of the, the things from maybe the Zohar itself, although I don't really want to study that necessarily, but to see what it, where they're actually getting these concepts from. But instead, I had to accept things like Chabad.org and different things like that as a source. But one source argued that um, a way to, to kind of deal with that issue is the fact that you have a lot of souls that are not connected to bodies that are present at Mount Sinai, which is kind of a strange, oh, bizarre... And just kind of 
meaning, you know, helpfully, you know, resolves this problem without really any explanation or even tied to scripture in any way. Yes, sir. You said that, I mean, you indicated that this kind of really springs into being in the, in the 16th century with the, with the, the Ari, um, a blessed memory, I should say. Um, is, does this show up previously? I mean, did the Talmud talk about the, uh, No, um, that whole thing is, it's absent from the Talmud, even from Maimonides' stuff. It's, it's, you can't find it before the Ari, the Ari starts talking about it. And um, the only other place you can find it is in the Zohar and certain minor Kabbalah writings. And the Kabbalah itself, for those who don't know, is actually from um, a little early in the Middle Ages. I think it's close to what, around the 12th, 13th century. Um, there was a man, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, who, uh, yeah, who, well, the guy, there was a man who came out and said, I have this book, this is... The, the the Zohar it's from uh, Bar Yochai uh, and from the second century and he wrote all this down and then his students have been passing it down throughout the ages and I managed to finally get this copy. Well, I found multiple sources that from that time who looked at it and said he's full of you know wacky crazy stuff he doesn't know what he's talking about that this thing was entirely made up by him that he just wrote it. That's not to say that he didn't have some truths in it. It's even possible he may have had some traditions that had somehow been passed down. But this guy, from some sources at least, was writing this on his own. So the Zohar then, it questions whether or not, you know, the very basis for this whole concept is actually even coming from anything connected to any scripture or even strong traditions. Yes, sir? I'm over 50, so I'll preface that. As a student of the Zohar, uh, it is it is it is a it is an extremely complex book. Unlike unlike the Talmud, unlike Scripture, it's it's uh, it's intricate and it is woven with uh, some incredibly beautiful concepts and some really weird stuff. Uh, so we're, just because one guy wrote it in the 12th century doesn't mean it's not there are elements that are based on previous. That's why I asked exactly. Yeah, that's what I was saying though. Is essentially is. He put all that into what we know as the Zohar, but it's possible he may have been getting it from some ancient traditions. And I, I did want to make that clear. He, I'm not saying that essentially he was um, like the founder of the Mormon you know, religion. That essentially he just all of a sudden said, hey, I've got all these ideas and copied it down. He probably was getting some of his stuff somewhere from traditions from down from the centuries. But he, this man, from sources at that time who looked at it said, the dude kind of wrote it himself. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think there's a thread of Tanya in here too. Yeah, yeah, there is, but you know, yeah. You talk about Sitra Akra or the other side. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you've got three classes of individuals in Tanya, and I believe that Sadiq is the one who probably is, you know, he's the sage that gets sent back to help out the rest That's of us. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, another thing too is Zohar doesn't talk a lot about Gilgal. I mean, it's not, it's no. not all It's not like a, it's like, from what I saw, it was three passages. It's not a big thing. And honestly, it wasn't even, even among those who like actually studied Kabbalah, no one really talked about it. This really was never an issue. And actually, it still kind of isn't talked about today. It's kind of one of those things that it's just they kind of go, okay, this is part of it, you know, whatever. Like I said, if you're approaching a lot of beliefs from the idea of what some of the rabbis do with, okay, that's all fine and great that we can think about this, but what's the practical application? There's no practical application to this. There's nothing, you, it's just a thought. Essentially, it's a, oh, this is a cool concept to think about. Even if it were true, it's not going to change how you live today. 
So because of that, a lot of people see no reason to ever talk about it. It's entirely unnecessary. They view it as just, this is something that goes on and whatever. And that's what a lot of the Chabad do. They see no reason to talk about this, and it's why you won't hear it from a lot of people. But a good number of Chabad do believe in this, and then a lot of other Jews as well. So that's why I wanted to talk about it, is because this is something that you will find in Judaism. And I actually hadn't known a whole lot about it before until one of my teachers in my classes at UNC Charlotte mentioned it. And he actually mentioned it being strong in... Uh, the Kabbalah, and I was like, "Really? I didn't know that." There's actually a passage in the Bedtime Shema. In this transmigration, or that's true. I'd forgotten about that. I, I would add, you're, it is interesting to see how it's, it's either uh, the Chabad-type Judaism that that really embraces this, and modern-day kind of like secular Jews who who just like to New have some exactly so that. New Agers, and quite frankly, there's a lot, and it's, this is actually very helpful just to kind of get a better idea of where, where they're coming from, what, what this really is, because it's been my experience. When you talk to those New Age Jews, they all have a kind of personal heartstrings attached to, to some kind of spiritual, I don't know, ecstasy that's always related to something that happened like in a previous life. And, uh, so just well, you know, I think everybody outside Orthodox faith has some thing they're grabbing and holding on to, whether it's their own abilities or, or some kind of spiritual aesthetic thing that they're hoping for and, and yearning for. Everybody's got something out there. Because, I mean, it's, it's rare to find a guy who's got nothing. He's just some schlump. That's, that's so rare. And he's easy to deal with. It's the ones that have all this baggage where you want to, you know, just tear this stuff away. And, you know, as, 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 as you and I have done, try and get them back to the Torah. You know, you know, let's skip the Zohar for a second. Let's skip Pat. What, let, put it, yep, let's go back to the mountain. Let's just let's have the Torah. What just occurred to me is that in the garden there were two trees. I mean, when we say Eschayim, we're talking about the Torah. That's right. But now there's a Kabbalistic tree. And it's called Eschayim. Yeah, it is. That's the ironic thing. I think this is a great opportunity to learn about the idea of, as my dad likes to say, finding the meat and spitting out the bones. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of really good stuff from Chabad. There's a lot of really good stuff from Hasidic Judaism. There's a lot of really good stuff from the Siddur. But every now and again, you'll come across a point like this. And this is really helpful to start off by saying, okay, I'm not going to just throw it out because my pastor told me to ten years ago. Why do they believe this? Is there any scriptural proof? Oh, well, there's not. Okay, fine. Now we can check. That actually, I did want to note that, and that actually leads me to my final point. All of this being said, there is something to learn from Gilgal and that concept. We must be very careful of our traditions. Do they have scriptural basis? If they aren't mentioned in the Tanakh, are they mentioned in the Apic Salic scriptures? And what purpose do those traditions serve? Do they bring us closer to God, or do they drive us farther away? Much of Yeshua's criticism of some of the Pharisees is of how some of their traditions sometimes superseded the commandments or intentions of the Scripture. Remember, it's not what you think, but what you do. Any final comments? Do you have one, sir? Okay. Just, just one question. Is this uh, thought more prevalent among Ashkenazi Jews as opposed to other groups? I'm actually not sure about that. I would expect... Yes, since the guy who's doing all this is Ashkenazi, but yeah, it's Hasidic, but I don't really know. I'm not sure. Uh, any other comments, questions? 
Um, I didn't find actually anything from Vessel that talked about it. Um, pretty much everything I found was either those in Chabad or those who kind of outside Chabad but still really like the, the uh, Kabbalah or those just commenting on the whole thing. Yes, sir? Um, in dealing with Chabad, I guess one thing is to go back to the Torah and find where the evidence is in the Jewish soul. That would be an interesting question to ask if we could get them to demonstrate. And secondly, I think it's important for us to... You mean a Jewish soul as opposed to a Gentile soul? Yeah. Like it's unique? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's an interesting question. Yeah. I think it's important for our witness too, you guys know my heart on this, but that when we do encounter Chabad as well, and if they do believe in reincarnation, that we're not leaving them with the wrong impression that Yeshua came to give us a chance. Um, Hashem says, and He does, He's the God of purpose and promise, not a possibility. And He purposed and accomplished redemption for His people, His elect, on the cross. And that's the good news. So we just want to be sure and get to that, you know, with the Bible folks. And this issue also, you, Judaism is not like, like to talk about this a lot amongst themselves, but our situation does, ironically enough, create potential for this conversation to come up. Because you may have Jews look at you and say, well, you think you're Gentile, but you've really got a Jewish soul. Some Jewish guy before died, didn't do everything right, he came back as you. So this is a good opportunity as well to be able to kind of back up and say, no, 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 let's look at Isaiah, let's look at Zechariah. The Gentiles are actually important. We're fulfilling a prophecy. And oh, by the way, we get in because we've been grafted in exactly. for Messiah Yeshua. So it's an opportunity to kind of back up and address what is a potential issue that's gonna, that can come up. I mean, as an example, you know, one of my favorite Jewish authors, she mentions this in like one chapter out of three or four books. It's not a big deal, but it does appear, and it's important to know about it. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, just, uh, I'll tell you afterwards, Jeremiah, but uh, I'm so pleased with the way that you approach this with a with a mature uh, approach that you didn't fling names or make fun. And uh, that's one of the things that is extremely damaging to uh, all of our testimony is when we simply discount it as, well, how stupid, how could they ever possibly believe this? And not try and understand the basis for it. When we talk of men like the Ari, who did contribute profoundly Absolutely. to Judaism in positive ways, uh, we should be careful not to, not to denigrate Simply because someone's off base or wrong on something doesn't make them evil. Yeah, and that if is actually. We are, then we all stand in that state. I do want to note with you saying that that um, the Ari, although I may have I may have kind of cast some of his teachings into a bad light, and I, I apologize for completely doing that in all of them. The Ari is responsible for bringing a lot of Judaism back. It had started to move towards some of the other Enlightenment ideas away from God. And the Ari actually helped Judaism return to the Torah. He actually made a very strong point about that. He was a very strong um, leader in regards to practical application on the Torah. And that actually is where he first gained some of his fame. And I discovered that when I was doing some of my research. Is the reason that he started going into... Kabbalah and all those different things is because at the age of like 15 he had some of the rabbis in Egypt going to him because he knew so much about how to live the Torah out that he was on non-mystical things he was a foremost expert before he was 20 so that's why he moved on to the Kabbalahs because he felt like he'd reached a point where he learned everything that he could and now he wanted to get into the deeper things so I didn't want to mention that he actually like my dad said really positively contributed to Judaism it had a very strong impact the key is, 
maybe just because he had that strong impact doesn't mean you should take everything he's saying is automatically correct. View it through the lens of Scripture. Yes, sir.